Yo, what is happening, everybody? This is Austin coming back at you with another episode of the Coffee Break Hams podcast. Today on the podcast, we are going to be doing um, another vent talk. Uh, this uh, talk w- has been something that I've actually been trying to kind of develop in my own mind here for uh, quite a while now. Um, and it's something that I think that I probably personally struggled with when I was first doing some ventilator management stuff. And uh, and so hopefully it helps a few of you guys in your own practice. And what this, uh, what this podcast is about is that you've got somebody on a ventilator and uh, you're doing okay. And then you kind of take your eyes off them for one second. You start hearing an alarm, you turn around and you've got that freaking high peak pressure alarm, that high PIP alarm going Going off on your ventilator, and so the next uh, you know twenty-ish minutes or so, we're going to talk about how to dissect that out, um, how to figure out what specific problem you're dealing with, and then hopefully how to fix it. So, uh, without any further ado, we will get right into it. So the case that we're going to be looking at is uh, uh, just a basic, it's an unresponsive 37-year-old male. You get there, he's hypotensive, he's hypoxic. Um, place him on the monitor, his vital signs are kind of sucky. He's uh, got a blood pressure in the 80s, heart rate's 120. Uh, I'm not going to belabor going through the initial resuscitation of this patient. Um, I've looked, uh, or I've really talked about doing that in a previous podcast in that undifferentiated dying person, the, the shock lecture. Uh, so if you are unsure of of how you'd proceed with that undifferentiated dying person, uh, uh, then go back to that podcast and take a little listen, and hopefully, um, uh, hopefully, you can answer some of the questions that you have. Uh, so nobody's around to give you a medical history on this patient. He's not maintaining his secretions. The decisions made after the initial resuscitation that this patient definitely needs to be intubated. Um, your partner um, doesn't really say anything about the patient being difficult to bag or anything like that. He gets tubed uh, with a with an 80 tube that's 23 centimeters at the teeth, uh, and he is placed on the ventilator. Your patient has an ideal body weight of about 70 kilos. He's five foot ten. And so, and he was just sedated, he was just paralyzed. And so, um, uh, we're just going to be placing this patient on a basic protective lung strategy. We're going to place him on a cyst control volume. Uh, he's 70 kilo ideal body weight. So we're going to look to do an eight milliliter per kilo, um, tidal volume. So we're going to be looking at doing a tidal volume of about 560 milliliters. Uh, he's got a night time of about one second with a respiratory rate of 16, a peep of eight, and then currently an FiO2 of hundred percent. And then we'll start maybe titrating that FiO2 down if his Sats are super good. Um, Post intubation vitals are pretty good. Um, maybe this patient had to be placed on a presser. Maybe not. Uh, uh, I don't have anything really built into this um, into this specific case. It's just obviously a fictional thirty seven year old. You guys start to do some other stuff, uh, and then you get this freaking alarm sounding on your ventilator, and you turn around and you see that it's the high peak pressure alarm or the high pip alarm, um, and you're kind of like, "All right, let's figure out what is going on." Right. So anybody who's been around a mechanical ventilator knows that the high peak pressure alarm is sometimes a frustrating alarm, especially if the patient is not incredibly well sedated, um, because it is really, uh, a lot of people will refer to it as the cough alarm. And so if your patient coughs on you, you'll get that high peak pressure alarm. But unfortunately, this one continues to kind of um, be pretty consistent. And you're looking and you're like, oh yeah, my pips are consistently above what I had set my high peak pressure 
alarm too. And so the first things first, we're going to move our alarm limit out of the way, right? So that way we can just start dealing with what's going on with the patient and it's not perpetually alarming with us. Remember that alarms on a ventilator are not to help the patient, not to save the patient necessarily. It's to save you for when you take your eyes off the ventilator. But if you're currently looking at the ventilator, you're looking at all of the pressures and all of your settings and everything like that, you don't need those alarms to be staring at you in the face and screaming at you because you are currently looking at the ventilator. You're just going to need to make sure that you're alarms are appropriately set once you start to take your eyes off of that vent uh, again. So let's look at that peak pressure. What is the peak pressure and what is uh, what is airway pressure really in uh, uh, in the terms of mechanical ventilation? And it's pretty uh, pretty obvious, right? So it has nothing really to do with the lungs. It does not reflect lung injury or danger inside of the lungs. All your peak pressures really correlate with or correspond to is the pressure that is being forced through the ET tube and uh, 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 or at least into the beginning of the ET tube. And it is the pressure that the ventilator is uh, pushing out of it. But the only things that really see that pressure are generally going to be the ET tube, maybe the trachea, maybe the primary and secondary bronchi, um, but that is not what your bronchioles are generally going to be seeing um, uh, as far as your peak pressure goes, right? The pressure that you are showing to your lungs, the pressure that you are actually exposing to your small bronchioles, your terminal bronchioles, and your alveoli are... Uh, uh, is very obviously the plateau pressure, right? Which anybody who does mechanical ventilation is well-versed in what the plateau pressure or the P-plat is. But back to PIPs for one quick second. So um, when you talk about like, oh, this person is having high PIPs or high peak pressures, um, what is like a generally accepted airway pressure or high airway pressure? And I know that at my own organization, um, uh, our guidelines say, you know, try to keep your, your peak inspiratory pressures at or below 35 centimeters of water pressure. If you look at a lot of literature, they would say keep them at or below 40 maybe. Um, does it matter? Probably not. I mean, if you have somebody in a high resistance state, I mean, who honestly, who cares about what the pips are? Uh, uh, and we'll get into that here in just a few seconds. But um, while it is, uh, uh, and it seems like a very intuitive thing to have like a, a target to stay at or below with your pips, um, probably doesn't matter all that much. Um, but Having a high PIP on a ventilator is oftentimes reflective of something else that's going on. So having a, a high airway pressure is generally not just reflective of you trying to breathe through like a coffee straw, right? It can be reflective of that increased resistance inside of that tube, but it's generally not just going to be that. So let's look at some of the things that can cause high airway pressure or high pips on the ventilator and then we'll start to dissect them out into like a little bit more edible bites so first things first and the number one reason that you would have high airway pressures is going to be inappropriate ventilator settings like your volumes your peeps your eye time is off inappropriate vent settings Number two is going to be either a circuit or an ET tube problem. So like kinking of a, of a circuit, uh, wet HME filters um, uh, that can cause a lot of resistance, uh, ET tube problems like a right mainstem intubation, kinking, mucus plug. Uh, and then we have things like 
bronchospasm, right? That's like breathing through a tiny little coffee straw. We have decreased compliance because of like fibrosis or pulmonary edema or atelectasis, i.e. Uh, ARDS. Uh, we can have a pneumo. We can have significant abdominal distension that's causing uh, high pressures on the ventilator. And then finally, we can have the simple ventilator asynchrony, meaning like they're coughing, right? So that list is freaking huge. And so it's going to help us a ton when we do get those high pressures, if we can start to dissect some of those things out into smaller, more edible bites. And the easiest way to do that is we need to very quickly when we see those high pressures, especially if the pressures are not like an acutely high one breath where it was 60 centimeters of water pressure because the patient is coughing or biting the tube or something like that. But this is a trend of their, their peak inspiratory pressures are starting to climb. We need to determine if the problem is a resistance problem or if the problem is a compliance problem. And it's very easy to do that on a ventilator. Um, especially if you have waveforms, but, uh, but even on like the LTVs and the Ravel, it's very easy to tell. When you have a patient who is intubated and being mechanically ventilated, you can think of the lungs themselves, the actual functional unit of the lungs, like the alveoli, you can think of the lungs like a destination theme park or whatever. And that is compliance, right? So uh, anything that is affecting the actual theme park itself is a problem with compliance. Resistance, on the other hand, is everything leading up to the theme park's parking lot, right? So everything else is going to be more of a resistance problem. So if you can measure whether a patient, patient has a resistance problem or a compliance problem, you can pretty easily start to determine uh, you know, what may be causing these high pressures. And so before we can figure out or before we can dissect what uh, the problem is, is it resistance or compliance, we have to talk about some figures that you should always know when you are A, mechanically ventilating somebody, but especially if you are having high airway pressures, high, especially high peak inspiratory pressures. And the first and foremost is you need to know what your plateau pressure is, right? You need to know what the actual alveolar pressure is um, in order to determine uh, which one of these two problems it is. Second, you're going to need to know what your exhaled tidal volumes are. Remember that no matter what type of mode of ventilation you're in, you always need to know what your exhaled tidal volumes are. If you're in a pressure mode of ventilation, exhaled volumes is, is arguably the most important number to look at on the ventilator all the time. And if you're in a volume mode, it doesn't matter what volume you type into the ventilator. You're not necessarily going to get that if you have a bunch of loss due to resistance and stuff like that. You're going to end up having smaller exhaled volumes. So you need to know what your exhaled tidal volumes are. The third is that you need to know what your PEEP is, and that's pretty obvious and pretty easy to determine what your PEEP is. And then the fourth is something that I think a lot of us forget to look at when we're doing mechanical ventilation. Not always, um, and depending on the ventilator, you may actually physically put this in, but the fourth and final piece of information that you absolutely need to know in order to figure out what kinds of problems your patient is having is you need to be looking at the peak flow during the inspiratory phase of your patient's breath. 
The peak flow is in some ventilators, you physically dial that in um, uh, and you dial it in as like an inspiratory flow rate. So you're like, yeah, we just want our inspiratory flow rate to be 60 liters per minute. Um, but sometimes uh, on other ventilators, you will set an inspiratory time, an eye time, like a second, and then the ventilator will do that calculation for you and it will adjust what kinds of uh, peak flow it needs to do in order to um, accomplish what you have tasked it to do. So for example, if you set an eye time of one second and, um, and you have a tidal volume of 500, that means that it needs to be able to deliver 0.5 liters or 500 milliliters, 0.5 liters into that person's body over the course of one second. And so if you have a inspiratory flow rate that the ventilator has determined uh, uh, needs to be at 30 liters per minute in order to accomplish what you want. Um, then if we do that math, it's 30 liters per minute, meaning it's 30 liters over the course of 60 seconds, which means that it would be 0.5 liters per second. So if I set a tidal volume of 500 with an eye time of one, my peak flow or my V peak or my inspiratory flow rate, those all mean the same exact thing, are going to be about 30 liters per, excuse me, excuse me, 30 liters per minute um, of flow, which gives you that 0.5 liters per second. So you need to know what your peak flow is. Um, and uh, oftentimes it's going to be uh, in like a, um, uh, just on the information bar. You can also see it uh, directly on the home screen on many of your Hamiltons and things like that. All right, so we know what we need to know in order to determine if this is a resistance or a compliance problem. And now let's kind of dissect those two out or define those two. So what is high resistance um, and what is low compliance when we, uh, when we um, uh, are trying to figure these out? And in order to really explain them well, it's actually easier to probably show you the calculation, how to calculate them. And keep in mind that showing you the calculation does not mean that you're going to do this on a patient. Um, uh, oftentimes these calculations are actually given Given to you anyway when you do specific maneuvers on the ventilator. Um, but this is just to illustrate my point. It's very easy to see if it is a resistance or a compliance problem just looking at your patient and you do not need to physically do these calculations. So high resistance means anything before the little tiny bronchioles, right? The bronchioles in the alveoli are always a low resistance state and so are always in a low resistance state. If you look at the um, at the airway resistance curve, you can see that it's pretty low inside the mouth and then it gets really high uh, in the trachea and the primary bronchi and then it kind of starts to go down gradually until there's almost no resistance by the time you reach the bronchioles and the alveoli. And so when you have high resistance, it has to happen before the bronchioles. So it'll either be in the circuit, the ET tube, the trachea, or the primary, secondary, tertiary, or tertiary um, bronchi. And think about that, right? If you have a PIP of 30, you're blowing through this little tiny coffee straw from your mouth, let's say, um, you're blowing 30 centimeters of water pressure through this little coffee straw. On the other side of that coffee straw, you have a little bag that you're going to keep five of peep in, let's say, um, or eight of peep in. But during the middle of your inspiratory phase, if you, if you stop forcing air into that circuit or, or in through that straw and you check that plateau pressure, your plateau pressure is 18. And you're like, whoa. So I'm pushing 30 centimeters of water pressure through this coffee straw. But on the other side, my plateau pressure is only 18, which is my PEEP 
plus the total amount of pressure that reached my alveoli, right, in, in the middle of that breath. And so I'm losing a ton of pressure through that little tiny coffee straw, right? And I hope that makes sense. And we'll be doing the calculation here in just a second, but just think about that. When you're looking at your patient and you have that, that tidal volume of, of 500 and you see your pips are 37 and you check a plateau pressure and it's only 12, you are losing almost all of that pressure at some point in the beginning of the circuit or the ET tube or the trachea or the bronchi. And, uh, uh, and you're really not exposing hardly any force to the alveoli themselves. If that plateau pressure is only 12, you're losing tons and tons of pressure through that circuit. Um, but as long as you're still accomplishing the goal of getting that 500 milliliter tidal volume over that second, um, then that patient's safe, right? And you can have those high high pips, 37, 38, but if the plateau pressure is low um, because you had lost essentially everything due to resistance, then your patient is not going to be very sick. So on the other side of that coin, talking about low compliance, low compliance, I said, does happen at the theme park, right? But that's not necessarily true. There's three places that compliance can be low or three, three areas that can cause compliance to be low. It's either the container itself. Um, meaning the size of the container. So if you are trying to breathe a 500 milliliter tidal volume just into the right side of the lung, right, into the right uh, right main stem or something like that, you've got a really small container and so you're going to have low compliance because it's going to be super duper hard to put that huge volume into a tiny container. The next place that you can have um, uh, compliance problems is because of inappropriate ventilator settings. And then the last place is it's going to be something within the actual parenchyma of the lung, um, you know, after those bronchioles. So like that patient who's like an emphysemic that has bad compliance problems or pulmonary fibrosis or something like that. So let's take this patient, for example, you're trying to put a 500 milliliter tidal volume into a person's body and your pips are 36. So your peak pressures are pretty high. You check a plateau pressure and your plateau pressure is 33. So you lost almost no pressure you know, in that early part of that circuit before the bronchioles. You put 36 centimeters of water pressure into that ET tube and your alveoli have uh, are seeing most of it. They're seeing 33 of it. And so we know that if that plateau pressure is above 30, the lungs are probably being injured. And what that really means is that what we are currently trying to do to that lung the lung does not want to do, right? And so uh, we're putting 36 centimeters of water pressure into the ET tube. Almost all of it reached the alveoli. We only lost about three centimeters of water pressure and our lungs are not stoked about that and cannot accommodate that. And we need to make some, some changes or we need to figure out why that compliance is so low. So let's talk about how to calculate these things. And like I said, we're not gonna go crazy. We're just doing it to, uh, to show some kind of simple numbers to illustrate the point. So a normal airway resistance is less than 10. Airway resistance is measured in centimeters of water pressure per liter per second, which I'll explain that in just a few seconds, right? So what that really means is that they're saying, let's take an airway resistance of five. What they're saying is for every liter per second of flow you put into that circuit, you lost five centimeters of water pressure of force between the ET tube and the alveoli. And so if we have a pip of, of 
30 and we have a plateau pressure of 25 and we go look at our inspiratory flow rate and it is 60 liters per minute meaning that you're getting one liter per second if you take your pip minus your plateau pressure um, you take that 35 pip and that 30 plateau pressure or whatever I had said um, I, uh, that equals five centimeters of water pressure and then you divide it by your one liter per second and that still equals um, a five so that means that for every liter per second you put a flow into that tube um, you started off with 35 centimeters of water pressure uh, at the beginning of the ET tube and that is reflective of your pip but then if they measure the actual pressure that the alveoli are seeing they lost about five centimeters of water pressure so you should see right about you know, three to eight is kind of the normal airway resistance um, in an intubated adult. Um, but if it's more than 10, then you have some sort of high resistance, right? So let's go through the numbers here. And, and just to reiterate the calculation, the calculation is very simple. You take your pips, you minus your peep, and then you divide it by your flow rate in liters per second. So the pressure um, uh, at the beginning of the ET tube minus the pressure inside of the lungs, the pressure in the alveoli, and then you divide it by the flow that you're putting into that circuit, right? Um, most patients do have a peak flow generally of about 30-ish liters per minute um, up to about 60 liters per minute. You only start to get into these really super high flow rates like 80 or 90, generally in like a pressure-supported mode, but, um, but you can also get them if you have super short inspiratory times, which we'll talk about here at the very end. All right, so you have a patient who has a PIP of 40. That's super high and you're like getting concerned about it. You're like, this person has continuous um, pips of 40, uh, a plateau pressure of only 28. And so at first you're kind of like, all right, like lungs are probably protected. That's not a big deal. Um, you know, our, at least our plateau pressure is below 30. So we're not super concerned about it. The peak flow is only 30 liters per minute right now. And so if you bring that all the way down from liters per minute to liters per second, you end up with 0.5 liters per second. So let's go through that calculation. So the PIP is 40 and the plateau pressure is 28. So if you do 40 minus 28, you get 12. And we know that it is PIP minus PPLAT, and then you divide by the flow that you're putting into the circuit. And so if you have 12 and then you divide it by 0.5, you actually get an airway resistance of 24 centimeters of water pressure for every liter per second of flow that you put in there. And that's super freaking high resistance. And we need to actually start looking at that. We need to uh, investigate what's going on. The most common cause of high airway resistance, especially if it was acute, um, uh, is going to be some sort of kink, right? Some sort of kinked tube, uh, uh, you know, those blue Thomas tube uh, tamers or whatever they're called. Uh, you know, we very famously um, uh, call those the Thomas tube kinker, especially if you have an ET tube size less than a 6.0. Uh, it tends to want to kink those tubes, um, uh, just the mechanism by which it grabs them. And so uh, if you all of a sudden are getting these super high airway resistance, you know, look at your tube. Is it kinked? The next reason that you could have very high airway resistance is that the tube is too small. If it is becoming an issue, like you are having to put in these huge pips in order to get the volumes that you desire, but your plateau pressures are still relatively safe, um, uh, but you're just like, man, these pips are like 50 in order to get this volume into their body, we may have to think about doing some sort of tube exchange if it's, if it's this high, right?
The next thing that can cause high airway resistance is going to be a mucus plug or a clot in the ET tube, and we need to probably suction the ET tube out. And then the last thing that can really cause some super high resistance is going to be your severe asthmatic, um, that bronchospasm patient. And this is the patient that we don't really want to miss, right? Um, that severe bronchospasm patient. And so um, in that patient who we've got pips in the 50s and our plateau pressure is 30, um, our inspiratory flow rate is 0.5, and we've got this massive airway resistance of like 40, which is just insane. Um, uh, that is potentially going to be our bronchospasm, our asthmatic patient. And we need to treat that person with some like beta agonists and um, potentially doing a slower respiratory rate with a longer eye time. Uh, remember that if you do a longer eye time, you're not having to force that volume in so quickly. So think about, you know, breathing, maybe not through a coffee straw, but just like a regular straw at a restaurant. If you need to get 500 milliliters into a bag on the other side of that tube and you only have one second to do it, your pressures are going to be super high because you're going to have to force all of the pressure that you can possibly muster in order to get that 500 milliliters in over one second. But if you drop the respiratory rate down in order to still maintain a good I to E ratio and you prolong that I time just another 0.2 or 0.3 seconds, you'd be amazed how much easier it is to put 500 milliliters in over a, a slightly longer period of time, um, and that's going to drop your pressures down pretty significantly while you're waiting to get those beta agonists on board and hopefully stop that bronchospasm from occurring. Granted, that is not something that you are going to do on a ventilator without some sort of help and outside medical direction, generally speaking. All right, so that's resistance. So tube kinking, small tube, mucus plug, severe asthmatic, if you've got those high resistance patients. And like I said, you don't have to really do the calculation. If you look over and you see the peak flow is 30, then whatever the difference between your PIP and your plateau pressure is, double it, and that's your airway resistance. If you look at your peak flow and it's 60, then whatever the difference is between your PIP and your plateau pressure, that is your airway resistance. And if it's less than 10, you're rocking and rolling. If it's greater than 10, you have a high resistance state and you may need to start looking at what is causing that. On the other side of the coin, the compliance side of the house, right? The 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 uh, the theme park side of the house. Um, uh, I did already do a podcast on lung compliance, and so um, if you're looking for a little bit more detail than what I'm about to do, then look back at that um, uh, look back at that uh, podcast to determine you know how you can potentially improve compliance in the lung. Uh, but if you look at an adult, normal lung compliance is generally accepted to be anywhere from about 50 to 100 mLs uh, uh, per centimeter water pressure. And let's define compliance. So you have a, a PEEP of 8 and you have a tidal volume of 500 and you have a plateau pressure of 18. What compliance is, is that it's saying it took me uh, uh, over the top of my PEEP it took me an additional 10 centimeters of water pressure, right? It's just the difference between your plateau pressure and your PEEP. So uh, my plateau pressure was 18, my PEEP was eight. And so over the top of my PEEP, it took me 10 centimeters of water pressure of force during the inspiratory phase in order to get the tidal volume that I want. And so compliance, that's all it is, is it's saying, for every one centimeter of water pressure I add into the circuit over the top of my PEEP, 
how many milliliters of tidal volume am I now going to get? And so if you look at the just the random numbers that I just talked about, a tidal volume of 500, plateau pressure of 18, peep of 8, you have that, that difference between your P-plat and your peep of 10. And so if you take your tidal volume and divide it by your delta pressure of 10, you get a compliance of 50, which is totally normal. So let's do the math on somebody else. And we'll really define the actual calculation. So static compliance specifically is you take your tidal volume and you divide it by your delta pressure, which is the difference between your plateau pressure and your PEEP, right? And so um, we need to obviously do an inspiratory hold, find out what our plateau pressure is, and then we're going to take away our PEEP to get our delta pressure. And what that is is the total amount of pressure that it took over the top of your PEEP in order to get to your desired tidal volume. This number on most ventilators is actually already displayed. This number, which is the difference between your PEEP plat and your PEEP is known as the delta pressure. And that delta pressure is um, generally uh, on most ventilators. Um, I know that on the LTV and the Ravel, delta pressure is on there. I'm sure that you can also find delta pressure pretty easily on the Hamilton as well. So we have a patient with a tunnel volume of 500. They have pips of 36, and you're like, man, what's going on with that? You do a plateau pressure, and you see it's 32. Um, I, so that patient just really quickly without really having to do any hardly any math, we know that a tidal volume of 500 is generally going to be, mean that the patient has a, has a peak flow of about 30 liters per minute. If we know that 30 liters per minute means that we're going to have to double whatever our PIP minus our P-plat is. And so we have a PIP of 36 with a plateau pressure of 32. That gives us um, a difference in those two of four. And then if we multiply it by two, that equals eight. So our airway resistance on this patient is only eight. That's cool. We're, we're less than 10, so we're rocking and rolling. But back to looking at compliance on this patient. We have a tidal volume of 500. We have pips of 36, a plateau pressure of 32. It's above 30, so that's not good. We have a peep of 7. So what is our delta pressure? Our delta pressure um, is going to be our plateau pressure minus our peep. So our P-plat is 32. Our PEEP is 7, so we have a delta pressure of 25. That's super duper high. Looking back at my compliance podcast, you want um, you want delta pressures less than about 18, if at all possible. Um, and so we want uh, uh, to take our tidal volume now of 500, and then we're going to divide it by our delta pressure in order to see what our static compliance is. And if we do 500 and divide it by 25, we get a static compliance of 20. That sucks. <laughs> um, and so what does that really mean for our patient? It means our static compliance of 20 means that we start off at the end of expiration with a PEEP of 7. And for every one centimeter of water pressure I add into that circuit during the inspiratory phase of the breath, I'm only getting an additional 20 milliliters of tidal volume. That's what a static compliance of 20 milliliters per centimeter water pressure means. And so that's why your plateau pressure is super high. Your plateau pressure is 32 because over the top of your PEEP, it took an additional 25 centimeters of water pressure in order to get the tidal volume that you want. So this patient has low compliance and we need to start thinking about why this patient is in a low compliance state, right? Especially if the call did not start out like this. If the call started out with a normal compliance and then it continued to get worse, we need to figure out what is going on with this patient. First and foremost, 
are your ventilator settings appropriately, right? Or appropriately set. So is your tidal volume super high? Um, remember, we can go down on our tidal volume from eight to seven, seven to six, six to five, five to four uh, milliliters per kilo if our plateau pressure is high because a patient is in a low compliance state. Also, in terms of ventilator settings, is your PEEP too low? Like you have suboptimal PEEP. Remember that the lungs are, um, you know, you can think of them like a balloon. And if that balloon only has two a PEEP in it or three a PEEP in it, and it takes a ton of opening pressure in order to pop that balloon open, then your PEEP is too low, right? You want to get your PEEP to a place where, um, where that balloon stays just open enough uh, to where it's like super easy to give the next breath. Um, but on the flip side of that, you can also have a PEEP that's too high. You've over distended or over recruited your lung. And for more information on uh, like optimizing your PEEP and stuff on a patient, then look back at my compliance podcast because that explains all of that. Number two, if your ventilator settings are appropriate, you need to immediately look for a right mainstem intubation. What is your tube depth? Did it migrate? Go in the mouth and look. Do not rely on lung sounds. We know that in the presence of a pneumothorax, 50% of emergency department physicians in a quiet environment misinterpret the side that the pneumothorax is just solely based off of lung sounds. And so I'm going to say with 100% certainty that in a noisy environment on the side of the road in a transport realm, um, we cannot determine if a patient has a right mainstem intubation solely based off of lung sounds. We need to go in and look. We need to make sure that the tube didn't migrate. We need to be putting our tubes at correct depths to make sure that it is not a right mainstem intubation. And that makes sense why the compliance would be so sucky with a right mainstem intubation, right? You are trying to breathe uh, the tidal volume of this patient um, into one lung instead of two lungs, right? All right, so the next thing, pneumothorax. Have there been like sudden hemodynamic collapse? Um, do we need to decompress the chest? Uh, if you have low compliance, sudden low compliance, you need to be looking for a pneumo. Next is going to be auto peep. So if you have low compliance, probably the first thing that I'm doing while I'm starting to troubleshoot the vent and look for a right mainstem or a pneumo or maybe some uh, some developing ARDS is I'm immediately checking an expiratory hold to see if I am auto peeping. If your ventilator does not have the ability to check an expiratory hold, what you need to do is you need to scroll over to see what your actual measured peep is, um, not your set peep, right? If you go and scroll over and see that your measured peep is 12, but your set peep is only five, then that means you have an auto peep of seven and that is bad juju. Anything over four of auto peep is clinically significant and we need to disconnect that vent circuit, change some vent settings, switch more to maybe an obstructive lung strategy um, and, uh, and start assuring that they can exhale fully. Like I had mentioned a second ago, we're going to start looking for pulmonary edema, maybe some developing ARDS, and we're just going to be using that ARGENET strategy, right? Do we have suboptimal PEEP? Do we need to increase our PEEP and FiO2 in order to maintain a good oxygen saturation and help to better recruit the lung with a more optimal amount of PEEP? And then lastly, the, the last thing that's kind of a biggie that can cause compliance issues is did this patient just get bagged for 35 minutes in the field before you guys got there to intubate this patient? And they need to have their belly decompressed, right? They need to get an OG dupe or an OG tube placed. Um, all right, guys. So uh, that is, I think, probably it for this one. I may make this one um, into a, a second episode with some additional information, talking more about the waveforms a little bit here in, in uh, uh, maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months. Um, uh, but this is probably going to be a good uh, stopping point for us for today's episode. So I hope you enjoyed it. Hope that uh, now you can understand a little bit um, better on the differences between high resistance and uh, low compliance on a vent. 
content, and it'll help to dissect out um, uh, or troubleshoot really uh, when you have those high pressures on the ventilator. Um, as always, if you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason to um, chit chat about any further episodes, anything you'd like to see on the podcast, uh, reach out to me at kaisercpr at gmail.com. That's K-I-S-E-R-C-P-R at gmail.com. Please uh, uh, don't forget to give us a nice five-star rating on our Apple podcast or whatever platform you listen to. And uh, appreciate everybody stopping by. We'll see you in two weeks.